Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Development Drums. That was, of course, the great Miriam McCaber, who died this week at the age of 76. She was a singer, an anti-apartheid activist, and a campaigner against injustice in Africa. It was a life well lived, and she'll be sorely missed. I'm joined today by Alex Cobham, policy manager for Christian Aid, and a former fellow in economics at St Anne's College, Oxford. And from down in South Africa, I'm joined by Stephen Devereux from the Institute of Development Studies. Coming up, we'll be talking about the Financing for Development Conference in Doha, and in particular on moves to change the rules so that companies pay the tax they should to developing countries. But first, we're going to look at the continuing food crisis that's affecting millions of people in developing countries, and what both governments and donors can do about it. Sitting here in Ethiopia, um, it feels to me as if there is still a serious problem. Uh, food prices have risen uh, in Addis Ababa in, for the staple food, which is teff. Uh, food prices have quadrupled. Uh, and yet, um, uh, across the world, people's attention has moved to the financial crisis and the credit crunch. So I guess the first question uh, to ask you both is whether there is still a food crisis or how big the problem is still internationally. Stephen? Yes, um, I think there certainly is a food crisis. Um, it's not quite clear what the food crisis actually is, though. Normally, when you talk about a food crisis, you expect to be hearing about harvest failures, you know, drought and so on. In fact, there are, as you mentioned, droughts in Ethiopia and, and other countries, but the, the problem isn't so much food supply. It's more about how the food is being utilized globally and then the effects on prices. And I think the main food crisis in terms of poor people in Africa is on food prices. So, so this is the familiar point, is it, that you know, Amartya Sen made in the 1970s, that, that it isn't that there isn't enough food, it's that the people who uh, need access to it don't have the entitlement to, to get it. It's a distributional problem. That's exactly it, yes. Um, and it, it's also explained by the fuel crisis, you know, because as the price of fuel goes up, so the costs of transporting food around from surplus to deficit areas also goes up. Um, so even within countries, we're seeing massive discrepancies in prices between the large urban centers and the remote rural areas, because getting food out to those remote rural areas requires trucking, and trucking is very expensive and increasingly so with the high fuel prices. So it's a combination of um, shortened supplies in terms of what's available to, for sale and the cost of getting it from, from one place to another, which is driving up prices and making it unaffordable for the poor. And that's the real problem about the crisis. It's not lack of food. It's unaffordability of food for the poor. This is a different analysis. than the, There was a lot of speculation in the press earlier in the year, in, you know, uh, around the summer, that, that the rising food prices and indeed rising commodity prices were simply supply and demand. You had fast-growing populations in China and India. They were becoming increasingly rich. They were wanting to 
to buy more food, uh, buy more fuel, and um, because because it would take time for the supply to to rise in response to that, in the meantime, the price would rise. So that's that's an idea that there's a kind of trend increase in demand that's leading to uh, to a price rise. The point you're making is, is a slightly different one, which is a microeconomic one. There's problems with transport. There's problems uh, with, with particular harvests in particular countries. And that's leading to a distributional problem. Some people's harvests have failed and they, can't, they, they don't have enough money to buy food in the market. Does that mean that our analysis of what's underlying the food crisis is now different than people were saying in the summer? Not necessarily. I think it's the interaction trends and the micro-level shocks, if you like, which is causing the crisis in certain areas. Um, and it's also, to me, it, it, there's a risk of complacency here because we're now seeing global food prices starting to level off and people are saying the crisis is over, prices are going to start coming down quite soon. And that might be true at the global level, you know, but these trends that you talk about with um, China and India suddenly increasing their demand and uh, surpluses being diverted from the US and Europe towards the Far East, etc., those kinds of trends would account for slow increases in price inflation over time, which is what we have seen, but they don't explain these sudden price spikes that we've seen with prices suddenly doubling or trebling in parts of Africa. So I think for that, you need to look at this other set of factors, which has to do with weak markets, within countries, high transport costs, uh, monopoly pricing, um, and also harvest failure. So you do have this you know, supply failure at the local level, uh, plus constrained supplies at the global level, and then the costs, as I said, of moving food around, which, uh, which raises the costs again, you know, beyond just the price rises at the global level. There are also these transactions costs, which make it uh, unaffordable once you get out to northern Kenya, for example, or highland uh, Ethiopia. Alex, are you, do you want to come in at all? Well, I mean, I was thinking in a sense about the, the kind of the way this plays out with the financial crisis. Um, you know, as, as Stephen said, it has kind of diverted attention. Um, the, the financial crisis has diverted attention from the food crisis, but it's, but it's certainly still there. And one of the exacerbating impacts that I think we may well see is that the period of high prices um, for food has driven to some extent increased investment but i would say the financing for um for that investment is is certainly under threat now so whether you'd get the kind of market response to those higher prices that you'd expect eventually over time coming through now i think is less clear so the potential for although globally inflationary pressures are likely to fall the potential for that to remain in in food is probably quite high um the um both the imf and the world food program are certainly certainly still playing up the the fact that prices are higher on average and that that's having particular um effects i mean the imf has some analysis of um uh food consumption having fallen in urban households, poorer urban houses, households by 16% in Nicaragua and 3% in Mexico from the end of 2006. Now, if you see food prices coming down um, significantly, then that may start to unwind, um, leaving aside questions of, you know, the, the economic impacts of the crisis on people's incomes. But without investment in greater... Um, food production it's not clear that that will happen so you may get food inflation remaining relatively strong 
even as um, global inflation uh, more generally is falling. I think you know it is something that people need to keep an eye on. The concern that you're both expressing is is that um, th there was a flurry of interest and donors uh, talked about uh, investment in agriculture, um, and and the question about whether that is whether they they've lost interest in that already, given given the broader scale of the financial crisis, or whether there's still underlying work going on. I mean, the, the cynical view might be that when food prices are threatening to cause disruption in home markets in donor countries, when prices are rising in, in supermarkets, uh, then countries get interested in investing in increasing food supply in developing countries. But if the problems are these local spikes and local supply problems that Stephen was describing in developing countries, those are likely to attract a whole lot less interest from donor countries. Is that, is that too cynical a view about what, what we're witnessing? I wouldn't say it's too cynical. I mean, uh, agriculture in tropical countries, Africa and South Asia, but especially Africa, has been scandalously neglected by the international donor community for decades. Um, and even the recent World Bank uh, World Development Report on, on agriculture doesn't offer very much to the small farmer. So it's only when we in the West are affected by, by high food prices that suddenly we become more preoccupied with trying to do something about it. Um, but certainly there are initiatives around to try to, you know, launch a green revolution for Africa and so on and, and talk about renewed investment in smallholder farming. Um, and that hopefully will not be undermined by the financial crisis, although I think Alex makes a very good point that there is a connection there and there is a risk that all of the recent impetus around investing in agriculture might be lost because of the, the refocusing on, on the financial crisis and the, the, you know, the scarcity of resources, public resources for investing in agriculture. But uh, without that investment in agriculture, we can't either see smallholder incomes growing or uh, food prices coming down within poor countries. Um, and that's the problem because there is also a paradox, of course, around food prices that higher food prices are actually good for farmers, but low food prices are good for consumers. And, and the people who are most affected by hunger and food insecurity are, in fact, smallholder farmers who don't grow enough of their own food. And so for part of the year, they are dependent on markets. So for part of the year, they want prices to be low. The other part of the year, they want prices to be high. It's a very difficult balance to get right. Uh, and right now, they're losing out in both, at both ends, if you like. Mm. I mean, that, that difference between the interests of producers and consumers does go back to, you know, things that people have said for years about the importance of, uh, if you like, attacking the margin between those two. So making it easier for people to get their produce to market in particular, and whether that's through supporting um, cooperatives that makes uh, market access more um, economic or it's through uh, investment in infrastructure particularly these things still have you know even with with robert zellick at the world bank talking about um agriculture and hunger as one of his main priorities these things still have a terribly low profile um uh, in the, the 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 midst of all the development um uh, ideas coming out so one possible reason why donors may not be investing enough in agriculture and there's a, a common criticism from the experts that donors have, have backed away from this issue in the last um, decade or so uh, might be that um, it, donors don't really know what to do. They, um, in the 60s and 70s, 
were promoting a lot of government intervention to uh, support agriculture. There's a lot of investment in things like extension workers. And that didn't prove a great success. And in the 80s, the, uh, they switched to a different extreme. The international agencies began to promote the idea that the private sector should be allowed to invest in agriculture and supporting small farmers, and the government should get out of the way of them doing that. And there was a wholesale retreat of government in developing countries from agriculture. And that proved, uh, didn't prove a success either. Um, and the question, is, to, to my mind, is, is have we arrived at a situation where we know what in between those two extremes we ought to be doing? Stephen, is, is, then, is it now clear what, what kind of set of policies uh, donors and indeed partner governments should be pursuing in the agricultural sector that combines the role of, uh, of government with the private sector? It's getting a little bit clearer, but uh, we still have consensus. And I think, um, in a sense, we're still living through the consequences of having sh jumped from one extreme to the other. You know, as you said, in the, in the 60s and 70s, the government was very interventionist with the agricultural marketing, parastatal subsidies everywhere. And that obviously, uh, as you said, didn't work very well. So we jumped to the other extreme. All of those institutions and policies were taken away and farmers were thrown onto the market. But the market was very weak and without um, infrastructure, especially markets, um, transport networks, uh, communications and so on, it was just not possible for the private sector to fill the vacuum that was left when the, when the state withdrew. Now, the question is, as you say, how do we get the balance right? How do we get the mix of public and private actors in place? And, and what should we take from what we've, what we've tried in the past that didn't appear to work and uh, adapt it to the circumstances of today? Uh, for example, one thing that we've seen quite strongly in recent years is the reintroduction of fertilizer subsidies, which were more or less abolished by the World Bank and other donor agencies in the 70s and 80s, but which governments themselves have been uh, pushing to reintroduce and in fact have gone ahead and done, often without donor support, because they believe very strongly that their farmers need access to inputs and the market is not delivering that access. So fertilizer subsidies are one mechanism which, which was uh, a which was dismissed as having failed in the past, but perhaps it was just the way it was delivered that failed in the past, or perhaps we can think of new ways of doing smart subsidies, as the World Bank likes to call them, which will which will make them work more effectively now. And the, the objective, obviously, is to try to get farmers to produce more, to have higher yields and higher incomes. And we must look at all the mechanisms available to do that, whether that requires public support or private sector development or a combination of both. Alex, is it relatively clear to you what kind of interventions uh, should be being promoted in the agricultural sector? It doesn't seem entirely like rocket science, at least. Um, I mean, as you say, we've we've gone from from one extreme to the other, and and we know the answers are in the middle. Um, you know, I certainly agree with um, everything Stephen said there. If we're, you know, if if we are concerned about yields, and we know that systematically smaller farms um, produce higher yields um, from their land. The questions we need to address are around um, those smaller farms' abilities to access markets primarily, but also to access inputs. Now, on the one hand, that may mean fertilizer subsidies. Equally, it may mean finally grasping the nettle of um, appropriate rural finance and in some cases, 
I think we need to accept that is going to mean state-supported banking. Um, uh, now, that's kind of um, perhaps become slightly less... Uh, yeah, well, perhaps slightly less unthinkable um, over the last year. Um, so we're talking about state investment in infrastructure, by which we presumably mean um, roads, uh, including feeder roads and, and um, rural roads. We're talking about uh, fertilizer subsidies um, and presumably also seed subsidies. We're talking about uh, the possibility of state banks. This this does sound a bit like we're going back to, um, you know, the kind of collectivized uh collect collectivized farming of the 60s and 70s what's are, are you saying that the the role for the private sector in introducing new technologies or providing financial services uh isn't isn't going to work anytime soon in developing countries no i think we need to be very context specific about this um you know and it's not necessarily state banking that i would particularly want to push but potentially some state support to banking if that's to private banks if that's what it takes to get an effective um rural uh, banking system in place and that's really going to depend a lot on the context of individual countries i think perhaps that's what we've got what we uh can take from this switch from from one extreme to another that we are in a position now where there should be enough policy space and enough evidence on what works that we can be a little bit more nuanced about thinking what's appropriate in a particular context it does mean i think a bigger role for the state than we've seen but that's almost inevitable because the donors have pushed so far um, away from that. Um, but that doesn't mean going back to where we were before. It just means opening up a little bit and thinking a bit more about what's needed and then what will deliver that. If that's more or less um, uh, of a state role or of a market role, then that's where we should go. And Stephen, are you optimistic that the donors are now giving proper attention to agricultural policies uh, as part of their package of interventions? Are, are, is, is the talk that was around in the summer that this was important and we needed to do more of it, is that being sustained? And uh, is, there, is there evidence that, this, that there will be programmes of this kind? I certainly don't think that the donors can continue to ignore agriculture and the problems of the small farmers especially in Africa. Um, this doesn't mean that they're going to back up their rhetorical commitments with large amounts of funding or even that they're going to accept the uh, approaches that governments themselves are taking. And maybe what's more encouraging is to see the lines that governments are taking and the fact that they are sometimes uh, being rather independent and, and trying to come up with innovative solutions to their own problems. Um, and if I can go back to the example of fertilizer subsidies, because that has a certain resonance and a certain baggage attached to it. <laughs> But we're not talking about the old-style fertilizer subsidies where there was one agricultural marketing parastatal and that parastatal imported tons of fertilizer and then sold it at a fixed price to farmers and farmers couldn't buy from anywhere else or sell their produce to anybody else. And it was entirely collectivized and entirely controlled. What we're looking at now is much more innovative approaches. For example, using vouchers whereby the private sector is subsidized to deliver fertilizer to farmers um, using a voucher system and sometimes even using smart cards where farmers go to a, a, a store and they buy their fertilizer and they pay for it with a swipe card or a smart card through a point-of-sale device. So that's using the private sector very creatively to do the, server, the, 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 the job that it was meant to do in the first place, but it hasn't been able to do up to now because it's lacked the incentives or the, or the profit margins to do that. So if 
you can if you can find ways of, of using new technology involving the private sector but making sure that the, pri the public sector is doing its job of getting access to inputs to farmers getting them access to markets then uh, i think that's a much better way of looking at it a much more innovative approach than some of those uh, methods that failed in the past now clearly these are approaches that will help to increase uh, food production and productivity in the, in the long run in the short term with the food crisis uh, underway at the moment and a lot of people um, very significantly affected by that we are seeing aren't we some interesting uh, more shorter term uh, programs here in Ethiopia there's the social protection program Stephen wh what are we learning from that is that uh, are those proving a success there's actually been quite a, a revolution in um, social assistance or social protection programs in the last few years. Uh, we've, mo we've moved a long way from old-style food aid delivery, where you just essentially dump surplus food production from the West all over Africa. There's a big backlash against that, by, led by many donors. Um, and we're seeing the introduction of cash transfer programs uh, in several countries, at least eight or ten countries that I can think of, have got emergency cash transfer programs or longer-term social uh, cash transfer programs or even social pensions for, for citizens over 60 years old. These have been introduced in many countries. Stephen, do you want to explain for people who are not familiar with these social transfer programs what exactly happens and, and the difference between the social protection programs that, that are conditional cash transfers and the unconditional transfer programs? Yes, uh, certainly. Uh, about social cash transfers, what we mean is there are groups of people that are identified as being vulnerable. Uh, for example, widows looking after young orphans or every person over 60 years old. And those households become eligible to receive cash transfers. And then every month, those cash transfers are delivered. Either people go to the nearest post office to collect them, or else there's a cash distribution at a local pay point where people gather on a certain day and the uh, pay point um, provider, the, the service provider, arrives and delivers the cash to those people. And that's done on a regular basis, usually every single month. Um, and in Lesotho and Swaziland, Botswana and Namibia, these countries have all introduced social pensions, which means that every single month they are handing out uh, cash transfers to hundreds of thousands of, of poor, uh, well, every person over 60. So that's happened. And in, in Ethiopia, there is a program which is called the Productive Safety Net Program, which is targeting 8 million people. It's the biggest program in Africa. And that, again, delivers uh, cash transfers as well as food, um, either cash or food, to, to households who, in, who have to work so that it's a public works program, actually. Um, that's a conditional program. So you have to work for your grant in some cases. In Latin America, there are programs where people have to send their children to school or get them immunized. Um, in return for the cash, that's also a conditional program. But there are also unconditional grants being made uh, in many other countries, Malawi, Zambia, Kenya, Ghana. They, there are programs giving unconditional cash transfers to people identified as being poor or vulnerable. And in most of these cases, are these, are these grants that are being administered by the government but funded by foreign donors? Is that, is that a broadly accurate generalization? That's true of many of them. Um, there's quite a a mix. There are some uh, projects which are run entirely by NGOs and funded by international donors, and those are on non-governmental programs, usually run on a small-scale pilot project level at the district, uh, say. But um, there are these national programs as well, which are which are government-run. The social pension programs are all government-run. The Ethiopian program is a government program with donor support. So it's it's usually a combination of of donor and government. Um, uh, in, 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 in intervention, people working together to deliver. 
I think what we've learned a lot from, from these experiences is that cash transfers are preferred by people in, in most cases because they give people more choice. You know, you give a person food and they have non-food needs, but they can't meet their non-food needs unless they sell the food aid. So cash transfers give people more flexibility and more choice. They also tend to stimulate markets. We're having a lot of evidence of economic multiplier effects, um, income generated uh, by the cash transfers of the order of two or three times the amount of the cash. So very big positive impacts on in terms of the the cash transfer programs. But I think what's really concerning and how the food crisis has come along and undermined a lot of these positive lessons is uh, is that obviously the value of the cash transfers falls as the price of food and other basic goods rises. So unless you manage to index link the cash so that you're paying people enough to buy that same food basket, whatever the price, whatever the price of food is, you run the risk of the of the value of the cash eroding. Um, and what we've seen in, in, in Ethiopia and in Kenya is that beneficiaries of these programs are now asking for food rather than cash. They've, they've, gone, back on, they've gone back to the old reliable commodity-based transfer because they know that food retains its value, whereas cash loses its value when prices rise. Very interesting. Very interesting, Alex. This sounds miraculous, doesn't it? These, these I mean, apart from the uh, the issue, that, the important issue that Stephen mentioned at the end there, which presumably we could do something about, these these cash transfer programs seem like a, a very important way forward. Yeah, no, I mean, I strongly um, support that. Uh, I mean, it's w w one of the things. Going back to the the point earlier about you know yeah, where we might see if anywhere um on the, us being on the spectrum of states and markets I and mean, one thing that sort of program requires is really to be rolled out um in in serious scale is uh state with revenues but also the the bureaucratic capacity to do that and to keep the the payment process relatively clean um and that kind of goes back to another neglected area where I, I think attention is is also rising, which is the the ability of states to raise tax revenues um, to actually fund that kind of process, but also at the same time building the the bureaucratic capacity needed. So we're going to move on in a second to talking about uh, revenue raising and uh, the financing for development conference. Before we do that, um, I'm just keen to uh, tease out whether there's anything else in the agricultural sector. And I'm thinking particularly of this controversy that Paul Collier has caused by arguing that uh, what Africa needs is not just a green revolution in the sense of hybrid seeds that we saw in, in Asia, but a GM revolution, genetically modified seeds. Now, that's caused a lot of controversy with people who think that it would be very dangerous for Africa to adopt GM foods uh, against people like Paul Collier saying that this is absolutely um, important to raising productivity. Where do you guys both stand on on the use of GM and other kind of more high-tech and uh, ways of, of, of raising agricultural productivity. Stephen? Um, personally, I have strong feelings against GM, like uh, many people do. Um, I think that anything that, that can raise yields and, more importantly, I would say stabilize yields should be looked at very seriously, um, provided that the environmental and the health risks are adequately dealt with, um, regulated, and so on. But I think there is a very important point here that I'd like to make before we move away from agriculture, which is that um, it's very important that we think about the variability and the fluctuations that people, uh, especially small farmers, face, because that's a major cause of poverty. And it's going to get 
climate change. You know, we, we like to see harvests becoming more unreliable, crop yields becoming more variable from year to year. And that makes it extremely difficult for farmers to, to plan ahead, to invest in their own farm when they don't know what the rains are going to do. Um, and therefore, even to be viable in the longer run. So I think that what we need is, if we're going to look at GM um, technologies, we need to look at interventions that are going to stabilize yields. And that means also looking at irrigation, for example, and ways of harvesting water more effectively. Um, and also, I think I'm afraid to say this, but in the longer run, we need to find alternative livelihoods for large numbers of Africans. Because in the long run, as climate change intensifies and we continue to have this low input, low output agricultural model that smallholders are using, it's going to become unviable for large numbers of people. So we need to also be looking beyond agriculture at finding more diversified livelihood systems in order to help people maintain sustainable livelihoods in the longer run. Alex? Yeah, I mean, I agree, agree with that. I think um, Paul Collier's um, point comes across as, as rather unnuanced, um, if we can say that. You know, it, there's. Um, I don't think anyone who cares about the ultimate development <clears throat> outcomes is going to say it's a yes or it's a no to GM for Africa. But we need to be very careful about recommending something that's uh, really has yet to have any proven benefits um, of the sort that we're looking for. And you know, earlier this year, the the UK government, which at various times makes positive noises about GM, signed up to the the synthesis report of the the expert group, the International Assessment of Agricultural Knowledge, Science and Technology for Development, which you know put together by the World Bank and others. Um, and you know, big group of experts around the world saying there is no evidence of benefits from GM. You know, this is not the time for us to be um, putting political support behind what would effectively be a large-scale agricultural experiment in a continent where agriculture is so important to the experience of life of people living in poverty. You know, let's um, let's kind of keep exploring this, but somewhere else and not on that kind of scale. Um, but you, would think, your position be that the, the donors should be neutral about this? The countries that wish to go down this route should should be supported in doing so, and countries that choose not to, uh, that's fine too? Or would you actually have donors leaning against this kind of, uh, this kind of intervention? I think given the potential risks and the absence of any demonst uh, demonstrated benefits, I think at the minute donors would, you know, any kind of hard-nosed analysis would lead you to, to lean against this. Um, so I think that's, yeah, that's where I'd be. Let me tell you how it will be There's one for you, 19 for me Cause I'm the tax man Great. Let's move on, if we may, to the Financing for Development Conference. This is a follow-up meeting to the meeting in Monterey in, what, 2002, Alex, was Monterey? Yeah. Uh, which, in which the first major commitments to increase aid, but also um, some commitments about improving the quality of aid were made. George Bush surprised everybody uh, by announcing very large increases at aid in aid at the conference uh, or immediately before it. This is the follow-up conference. Uh, it's going to be uh, the week after next. 
And it comes at a rather strange time because, of course, we're at the dying days of the Bush administration, who will be represented there, but before uh, President Obama comes to office. Um, Alex, what's your take on what the uh, conference will cover and how important it could be? I think there's one one key area um, where there really is room for a, a draft, uh, well, on the basis of the draft outcome report, there's room for a final outcome report, which um, uh, goes beyond the Monterey um, consensus in, in quite a significant way. And that, that area is tax. Um, you know, we're not expecting to see any great further movement on aid. Nothing can really be committed on trade, given the, the stage of the or the collapse of the, the Doha round of talks. Um, the other areas, uh, in particular, those relating to financial flows, uh, private financial flows, it's not clear what um, really what more can be said. But in the area of tax, you know, there is a definite feeling that the um, the original consensus did not nearly enough to pin down the uh, the international aspects of taxation, in particular, to start to address the international obstacles to countries uh, having effective taxation systems and raising their own revenues for independent development. So that's politically, that's where I expect the pressure to be. And certainly Christian Aid and a great many other organisations are pushing quite hard on that. Um, what is the specific ask of uh, organisations like Christian Aid on the tax agenda? Um, and it, from uh, the Doha uh, conference itself, um, these are relatively limited, um, but uh, interestingly, apparently quite controversial with a number of um, governments, including the UK. Um, it's two things, really. The, the first is um, relatively robust language around the exchange of tax information between countries. One of the, the real problems that um, developing countries have uh, in terms of dealing with um, the taxation of business and of rich individuals is that they can't find the information from the other side of international transactions to know whether or not um, tax is being uh, evaded. Um, you know, that's transfer pricing and abuses of it by multinational companies, but also um, uh, stolen assets going off into the, the financial sector elsewhere. Um, so what that uh, ask is about is, is pinning down some kind of statement of intent about better information exchange. The second one is relatively technical um, and, and sounds terribly uh, trivial, uh, but is actually quite important. Um, and this is shifting the, the UN Tax Committee, which currently is a committee of experts that tends to spend a lot of time going line by line through documents being blocked by um, particularly the, the members from tax havens, um, turning that from an expert committee into an intergovernmental body, which in effect would be taking political decisions about how international structures of taxation work, which would report directly to ECOSOC and from there to the General Assembly. The, the ECOSOC is the, just, just for people is the Economic and Social Committee of the United Nations. Yeah, so, so what that, turning that committee into an intergovernmental body would give it a different type of political power. But this is a set of issues to do with whether um, companies and individuals 
pay the tax that's due in the countries where they are working. This is We're not talking about proposals for a, an international tax or a global tax or global tax harmonization. This is simply about making sure that the tax system works as it ought to for people to actually pay the taxes that are owed. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's, you know, um, taxes to some extent been neglected by by donors, also by NGOs and to a fair extent by academics and, until quite recently. Um, uh, and yet it is, uh, you know, the only long term sustainable source of, of finance for uh, independent development. Now, our estimates are that um, developing countries in total lose um, to tax evasion by um the corporate sector through through the mispricing of trade, they actually lose tax revenues of about 160 billion dollars a year. It's more than one and a half times the aid budget. So there's no question of the, the scale of this problem and the potential um, that addressing it would have um, to dramatically change levels of development finance. Are the NGOs who are campaigning for this confident that they are paying? Uh, all the taxes that are due in every country where they're working? Uh, I think there's a legitimate question there. And NGOs, like other donors, have um, historically taken advantage of um, uh, their relative power in order to um, not necessarily behave um, in, in a, uh, as, a, as a shining example. Um, on the, and, you know, that's one of the issues with tax, actually, that typically... If you look at economic models, rationality, everybody, I mean, every country in the world sees much higher tax revenues being paid than would be rational for people to do, given the likelihood and the penalties for um, being found not to have done so. Um, that's about it, is that tax is a social act. So compliance really depends on two things, according to the experimental economics literature. One is the um, early distribution that's, ha that's happening. The other is perceptions of other people's compliance. So if high-profile um, uh, individuals, but also NGOs, donors, um, multinationals, are seen not to be paying taxes or not to be paying an appropriate amount of taxes, it can undermine tax compliance all the way through the system. Um, so it, it is really important. I think so the point you raise is, is, is really important that um, you know, NGOs get their own houses in order um, and are seen to be doing so. But also that donors reassess their own um, attitudes to paying tax in the countries where they work. Now, look, let's move to the uh, other issues that, that are up for grabs at financing for development conference in Doha. Um, it seems on the face of it unlikely that the donors are going to arrive in Doha with their pockets bulging with additional aid pledges. Um, in, indeed, it um, almost seems unlikely that they will uh, even meet the commitments they've already given, for example, in Glen Eagles in 2005. Where are we on overall aid volumes and, and the prospects for donors living up to the commitments or even increasing them? Well, I think it's not terribly encouraging um you know we know the the difference between donor commitments and actual delivery of aid from 1990 to 2005 was about 3.4% of gdp in sub-saharan africa um so a huge gap there already and i'm afraid that 
the combination of the, the commitments that have been made um, in 2005 and since, and uh, the financial crisis now, I think that gap can only get wider. Um, there are, so far, in, in the UK at least, there, there is a commitment across the political um, spectrum to keep the target of 0.7%. Of but I think over the next year, as as the economic effects of the crisis become more apparent, I think maintaining that commitment is going to be increasingly difficult. But in a sense, that's one reason why it's it's important that the um, the conference can come out with some can make some progress on um, developing countries' ability to raise their own revenues. Stephen, do you want to come at all in on any of this? Um, Lina. Alex's point of importance of countries raising their own revenue and it's not just for financial affordability or sustainability it's also for political sustainability of programs yes. because one thing that donors are famously not very good at is being accountable to the citizens in countries where they are working um, so you set up a, a social protection program or an agricultural investment project or whatever it runs for four or five years and that's the end of the project cycle and the donor packs up and leaves um, whereas a government-financed, government-implemented program, it's a kind of social contract between the state and the citizens, um, which the, state, the citizens can then claim against. And we've seen that with social pension programs. You know, if social pensions aren't paid on time, the pensioners complain to their MP, and in one case in Swaziland, they actually stop Parliament from functioning for seven days until they got it sorted out. So, you know, governments should raise their own uh, revenues. They should finance their own programs, and donors should support that as much as possible because in the end, um, development only works if you have accountability in the system. And, and uh, externally financed programs being run mainly or funded mainly by international actors, there's no chance to build that kind of accountability and, and sustainability of, of these kinds of programs. Yeah, I think that's a, a really important point, actually. You know, the, the, the work of Stephen's colleague at IDS, Mick Moore, has been, has been very influential on emphasising the linkage between tax and governance. Um, there's something like a spectrum of development finance from tax at one end, which appears systematically to strengthen the relationship between states and citizens and the accountability of government um, through aid somewhere in the middle to natural resource wealth at the other end that appears systematically to undermine those relationships. Um, so it's not just the quantity of revenues, it's also the, the governance implications um, of, of relying on different sources of, of finance. One of the big issues that has been foreshadowed for development financing generally and, and perhaps specifically for the Doha conference is this question of financing for climate change. Uh, where we are seeing pressures for uh, additional spending both on adaptation, that means spending money on helping developing countries to cope with the effects of climate change, which the climate change is already in the system and which is coming, and spending on mitigation, that means spending on doing things that, that will limit climate change in the future. Are we going to be making any progress at uh, at Doha on, on questions of climate change finance, Alex? Not, I think, uh, any significant amount. And I think the Poznan meeting, the, the next um, important meeting in the, the UN Framework um, Convention on Climate Change uh, round of negotiations is in December, is probably where that will be very high profile. I don't think Doha will add much to that. 
And how much money are we talking about on climate change? What are the kind of sums involved? Is this, is, is this a big deal in terms of overall development finance? Well, I mean, it, it really depends on um, the estimates that you, that you take. But I think um, certainly some, some analysis of the, the likely cost of adaptation um, and of mitigation would imply flows from, um, from rich to poor countries um, somewhat in excess um, perhaps considerably so um, of of aid flows. Um, what, one thing that's that's important politically and is is I think going to continue to be a bone of contention for some time is that within the climate change talks there is an absolute commitment that any flows related to climate change um, will be over and above ODA and will not count as ODA. ODA means Overseas Development Assistance, so that's the official definition of aid that everybody uses to measure how much aid they're giving. And you and the commitment is, or the the desire is, that the money should be over and above current levels of ODA. But presumably some of it will count as ODA under the current definitions. Well, I mean, it is actually a firm commitment in the, the Bali um, agreement um, early last year and yet there appears to be um, either a lack of recognition of that or a desire to backslide on that um, among donors. And one of the things uh, is that a lot of the donors are looking to, to uh, funnel that money through the World Bank, um, which has, a, I think, at best a dubious record on climate change, um, uh, which inevitably um, mingles it with... with um, uh, ODA um, funds, um, and I think there is a, a kind of a decent prospect there will be quite a bust up over this at some point, unless it's felt that um, the richer countries are honouring the the spirit at least, if not the letter um, of the Bali Agreement. So one possibility is for uh, the money that is spent on climate change to count as ODA, it falls within the definitions, at least uh, a lot of the money that would be spent on adaptation falls within the existing definition of ODA. But for that money to be additional to the current aid pledges given by government. So it, it wouldn't necessarily be sensible for the money to flow through different institutions and different channels or for it to be counted differently. Provided that it is extra, that might mean, for example, that instead of a pledge of 0.7% of national income, the donors should be making a pledge of 1% of, of national income, which is the old 0.7% pledge, plus the costs of, of climate change adaptation. Um, and after all, climate change uh, has not been caused by developing countries, and yet they're the people who are likely to suffer most from it. Would that be an unacceptable uh, compromise from the point of view of, uh, of NGOs like yours? Do you want to see the climate change money managed through separate institutions and not counted as ODA? Well, I think for, for governance reasons particularly, it needs to be managed through separate institutions. Um, you know, there's a fundamental difference between ODA as um, as charity, effectively, and climate change finance as uh, the richer and more polluting nations discharging a responsibility um, to make some amends for the damage they've caused to developing countries. So um, having a, a, a governance uh, structure that channels that funding, which is based on, let's say, votes according to donations, clearly doesn't doesn't make sense and i think you know politically 
realistically that can that can be a serious stumbling block the, the other aspect in terms of you know whether it's reasonable to in a sense make a commitment which is your oda plus climate change financing total i don't necessarily see a problem with that although i think over the next year we're going to see you know increasingly detailed discussions emerge about the former finance and the actual financial flows this the scale of flows that should be happening that'll that'll move us along um i suppose the concern would be really that um uh progress towards 0.7 percent hasn't um hasn't been uh, remarkably rapid and progress towards some higher target might not um necessarily deliver either and without some feeling among developing countries that um you know that the commitments of the richer countries are genuine i think it's very difficult to get developing countries to sign up to what will at least eventually become binding constraints uh, on their development path so i think there needs to be some kind of demonstration of um of serious intent now how that works out in terms of the actual financing flows I think isn't particularly constrained, but it does need to be serious and seen as such. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Development Drums. Thank you for joining us, and thank you especially to Alex Cobham in Oxford and Stephen Devereaux in South Africa. And from me, Owen Bader here in Addis Ababa, thanks for listening.